Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well, then you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged, brought to you by Hedgeye Risk Management. Today is April 21st, 2020, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to do our podcast a little differently today. Uh, I'm going to commentate as usual, but I'm going to do it in a uh, conversation with my fellow Hedgeye analyst, uh, Christian Ford. Uh, Christian and I Uh, talk about almost everything, uh, you know, the data and the events of the day anyway. Uh, So we finally decided we might as well have the podcast in the same format. You could say that we're going to make it a little bit more unplugged than it was. After all, this is Demography Unplugged. Uh, Christian, how are you doing? Good. uh, Good. I'm doing good, Neil. I'm glad to be here. You know, I've been helping you research for this podcast for Many months now. So. I I know it, and it's been it's been glorious. Uh, where are you? Know where I am? I'm in uh, uh, Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C., and you are. I am in Portland, Maine. It is a brisk, cold day, but there's uh, no snow, so that's a plus. Well, I'm sure you're all adequately socially distanced up there, and um, uh, as we all stay in touch with each other through telephone and Zoom. Um, uh, I, I look, I mean, it's, it's happening to, uh, to everyone around the country right now. And it's, uh, I was, I've, I've, I've never been so digitally connected. Uh, and of course I've never been so, uh, uh housebound as well. So yes. we're, we're going to do a lot today. Um, as usual, we're going to look at the markets. Uh, we are going to look a lot at COVID-19, uh, just a reminder to all of the listeners, if you, I'm sure you must have already know, I do a COVID-19 call uh, on uh, Thursday at 12.30. It was Friday last week. We're going back to our Thursday schedule. Uh, Christian helps me on that call as well. Uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about, but inevitably, we have to talk about it on this podcast because this entire economic crisis, the policy response to it, Let's face it, this, um, this, uh, this uh, uh, virus is calling the shots, and, and ultimately, uh, it's determining what we are all doing. Uh, we're going to move on and talk about uh, income econo- economic indicators in the U.S. and abroad. I think this is a good time to take a closer look at Europe. Uh, I know I often uh, look at Europe. I think it's time to return there. Uh, Europe is being convulsed in just the same way as America and most of the world right now. And then finally, we're going to close. Well, we're going to kind of close on politics in the United States. And I think we're going to wrap up possibly by a discussion of um, a recent Newswire essay uh, I wrote called uh, The 2020 Pandemic and Big Brother Rising. Really why and how the pandemic is causing this huge resurgence, more than we've already already been seeing around the world, in the rise of, um, of, of populism and authoritarianism um, in 
in both the, you know, right wing and left wing varieties. Um, but what will be the long term uh, consequences of this pandemic? And indeed, how long will the pandemic itself actually last? But uh, this really matches and complements a piece I did, I think, a week or two earlier on the uh, uh, retrogression of globalization, how globalization is now going in reverse. We see the rise of, of, uh, of uh, community action, of, of autarkic economic policies, of xenophobia, of the rising of barriers between countries and regions. Uh, but this is a new mood we're moving into, and it, we want to explore that a little bit, and this is a piece where we can do it. So uh, with that, um, I think we're, we're off to the races. So uh, I think we'll start with with markets and um, uh, Christian. Uh, yeah, what are markets cool. done? All right. So since your last podcast over five market days ago, the S and P five hundred has climbed by two point two three percent, and meanwhile the global Dow has risen by only point eight four percent. Volatility is still with the VIX hovering around the mid forties. So it's well, Still wow. half of its high of 82, but still double that normal average of around 20. Right. And we're seeing, um, obviously, a deceleration of the bounce. I guess that's how we could characterize it. Uh, yes. We've seen this long rise back uh, from the drop. And again, Europe and the rest of the world is trailing the U.S. I just want to repeat that. that the rest of the world is not doing as much fiscal stimulus as the U.S., and the rest of the world does not enjoy, you know, access to the, the source of supply of dollars like the U.S. So it gives the U.S. a tremendous advantage. And once again, the U.S. is an is an, you can see how it's been favored by um, the rise in equity prices. Uh, but you can also see it's slowing down, right? This 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 rising is slowing down. I saw this morning uh, the S and P is down pretty seriously. Uh, and I think actually that's a harbinger of what's to come. Uh, and the fact that the VIX is no longer falling and we're kind of stuck at any other period of time, uh, Christian, you'd have to say 40 is a very high implied volatility uh, for equity yes. uh, markets. <laughs> uh, but but boy, it seems like it's uh, it's like we've descended, you know, uh, hugely from from you know eighty plus uh, scary scary heights where we were a little bit ago. Um, so one one thing that I think is really interesting, I, I I look at this now every week. Now I look at my my crisis signals, and three things I find interesting. One is um, the dollar uh, it continues to be elevated. Now the yield curve, I believe this is right, Christian, continued to go down last week. Is that right? Yep. Three month and ten year both went down. Both went down. So yeah. the Fed, it's doing its part. The Fed wants to get that dollar way down. It uh, uh, it wants well, it wants the yield curve down, but it wants the yield curve down in part to get the dollar down. That's good for U.S. companies. It's good for U.S. exports. It certainly uh, will make uh, uh, the the uh, the earnings reports of multinationals in the U.S. look better, and it will have a huge easing effect on emerging markets around the world. They've been really unable yet to do that. So that's an emergency indicator that continues to be elevated. Uh, the next is, wow, commodities. And let's just start with oil. I mean, <laughs> what, what do you say about a minus $30 per barrel oil? 
Um, so, yeah, that's kind of interesting. This is the May delivery price of Wex, Te Wex Texas uh, Intermediate. And apparently it has to do with uh, the fact that when these uh, futures expire, uh, any outstanding uh, purchases have to be delivered uh, to Cushing, Oklahoma, and, and, and people have to be prepared to receive delivery. And apparently uh, Cushing, Oklahoma is, is, is out of storage capacity as is the rest of the world. I mean, uh, all these all these super tankers are basically filled with oil, <laughs> waiting for price to go. I mean, every tank is filled with oil. Um, so we're, we're waiting uh, uh, for new space to, to, to free up. I think maybe pretty soon they'll, they'll pay you to take your car down to the, to the gas station to be filled up. Um, Unfortunately, we still have nowhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? And of course, that's the that's the problem with demand uh, for energy that is that is underlying all this. I do find this an utterly remarkable time. Now it turns out that the um, the spot price is still around twenty dollars. The June price is coming down. Uh, the spot price is also coming down. So this is going to impact um, the, the spot price and all all the uh, you know further uh, future prices, um, but. This is a supply and demand disaster for energy. And unfortunately, many of the U.S. firms, uh, particularly the small firms in Texas and the, the, uh, the you know, all the frackers, uh, they're forced to keep producing right now for cash, even though they're not getting a good price. They have to generate money right now. So, you know, we would like them to actually turn off their production, but they're not. And as we know, the Saudis and the, the, the Russians can't seem to make a deal. This is an embarrassment for Trump, isn't it? Because I thought he, I thought he engineered a Russia-Saudi deal. Or maybe he did, but it wasn't enough to make a difference. Yeah. So, well, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Um, okay, so now we want to well, we want to um, move on maybe and, and just talk about this this uh, continued sign of emergency, obviously, in these three things we've looked at, and the uh, the slowing down of the bounce, and how that is reflected in the reality of COVID nineteen. I've said this repeatedly. I think in the last week, the week before, uh, I've talked about um, uh, how the narrative uh, that the 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 global equity markets have framed, markets in general have framed. Uh, for COVID-19 is one of a, a natural disaster. Uh, this is sort of a uh, Katrina or uh, Fukushima reactor, you know, tidal wave disaster. Yeah, it's going to look terrible. And the great thing about framing it with that narrative, it doesn't look, it doesn't matter how bad the immediate data are, right? So you, you can't scare me. Oh, yeah, okay. Unemployment's going to 30%. You know, GDP is to decline by 30%. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter how off the charts the numbers are because this is a natural disaster. It's all going to be over and we're going to go into a V-shaped recovery, right? That's the, that's, once you accept the framing, then you just sort of screen out all the numbers. You're pre-prepared not to listen to the numbers as they come in. That's as, as, as I see it. However, um, as as my listeners know, and, and I know you know, Christian, I, I don't buy this narrative. Uh, and I remain to be, um, uh, we, we've seen this narrative pushed recently uh, by all these plans for reopening. 
uh, that have been coming out of the White House. Uh, they have all these gates uh, for three stages of reopening, and we're going to be opening you know, some states uh, later, I don't know, in a week from now, uh, before April's over, and then other states might try to do something in early May. Uh, I think this is all... Um, uh, this is all uh, uh, a distraction. Uh, I don't think the opening is going to be meaningful. Uh, and I think to the extent that we do open, it's going to be self-limiting. Uh, and, and I should just say, there is no exit strategy for this reopening. If there is one thing we know for absolute certain, and we, we talk about this every Thursday, right? And that is that as soon as you start getting people to move around more, you, rise, you raise the r naught on the infection and you start raising new infections, right? And that comes with a delay of about two and a half to three weeks max. So that's what you're going to find. As these states, and you know, originally they're going to marginally increase uh, mobility and, you know, some of these Midwestern states don't really matter much to our economy. But to the extent they raise it, we're going to look for new infections. And of course, as infections go up, then what they are looking at in the absence of testing, that's all they can look at, which is, you know, ILI, which is influenza-like illnesses. Okay, they can say, oh, those are going up. I guess they're not going down anymore. Well, I guess we have to start easing. All right, we have to go back into a more, uh, you know, suppressed mode. Okay, so what's that going to do for the next few months? We're going to be, each state is going to be titrating a little bit up and a little bit down. And as soon as they raise their restrictions with a, with a lag, they're going to get more infections and then they're going to go into more restrictions again. There is no exit strategy here. And I'm looking right now already, given the kind of uh, 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 lockdown we have, the kind of intermediate intensity lockdown, I think you'd have to describe it. You know, on our show, Christian, that the U.S., when it comes to actual limitations on mobility, we're about at the level of Mexico and Brazil right now. We're yeah. not. We're not at the UK. We're not at uh, 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 France. We're not at uh, Italy. We're not. We're not at Spain. Uh, we're not even at some of those uh, East Asian countries uh, that uh, that have uh, you know gone on again, off again. You know, uh, admittedly, they're doing a much better job than we are. But my was, point uh, is. Yeah, uh, I was gonna say those Google mobility reports. If you look at them, you can really see in the numbers that the U.S. is nowhere close any of these other countries. And, and I know here we are complaining, and, and it's not well. We've become a country of impatient whiners, and I don't know how else to say it. But I mean, and it's not because in Boston and New York and uh, you know Contra Costa County and the Bay Area and various places, yes, they are really locked down, right? Um, we're, we're not talking about that, but we're talking about average overall in the United States. We are not a lockdown country. And you already see it in the data in the rural areas, although their absolute numbers are way down in terms of deaths and infections, their delta is higher. They are rising now exponentially. These are the people, believe it or not, that are going to be you know, uh, loosening up their restrictions. Uh, that's going to be reversed in a hurry, right? Uh, mm -hmm. If there is any place you might argue that we should be loosening restrictions is in the places that really have clamped down for a long time. But here's my bigger problem. And that is, um, and again, for, for all of you listeners who care to know more about this, we, we do this, <laughs> we do this every week on Thursday. But the United States right now is sitting there looking at we're hanging up around 
for the at least the last three weeks at 30,000 new confirmed cases a month, uh, excuse me, a day, 30,000 new confirmed cases a day. And uh, I think uh, I will generously estimate that that is only one-tenth of the total new cases. So we're actually about 300,000 new cases a day. And, and you know, some listeners will say, well, how do you know that, Neil? What, what do you mean? Where do you get that? I get that data just by the number of deaths, okay? We're now at 2,000, between 2,000 and 2,500 deaths a day. You go back, how many infections did we have about three or four weeks ago? Probably around 25,000. So unless this COVID-19 does not have a case fatality rate of 10%, right? I, I think the number of new infections is about 10 times larger. I hope it is, because if it's not, we're dealing with something closer to the bubonic plague, right? <laughs> So, I mean, this is just using numbers rationally, okay? So that we know we are only confirmed, we only are confirmed cases are about 10% of actuals and, and actually maybe somewhat less because I actually think the case case fatality rate is down somewhere closer to 0.5%, not not 1%. But we can, you know, you can argue about that. There's there's disagreements. I know the Imperial College originally estimated 0.9, I've seen 0.8, so on. Anyway, many times worse than the flu, but it's not, uh, this is not, uh, you know, London, well, London in 1665. This is not the plague. Okay. So, so anyway, well, yeah, when you, uh, yeah, just to chime in for a moment, when you, when you talk about that 300,000 new cases a day and people, states already thinking about opening it up, I think that really shows the ludicrousness of the situation. Well, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. And here's the problem. Yeah, you're right. They don't have testing. So, you know, we're, we're in the dark, even the state. OK, the reason it has to look for ILI, influenza-like illnesses, because they don't have nearly enough tests. So they just yeah. have to do a rough proxy. But here's the point. Say ILI, say they, they reduced restrictions. ILI then goes back up again. What do they do about it? They have no idea where these cases are. So, okay, the first thing they need, as we all know, they need to do vastly more testing, right? And I don't know how slow this country is, has come to this realization that every country that has effectively had a strategy in dealing with it has massive testing, you know, South Korea being the being the best case. But but not only that, what do they do with the tests? Well, they need to follow up. They need not only testing, but tracing. And they need a massive uh, uh, staff of public health workers, uh, we're down to maybe 2,000, 2,500 healthcare workers in the entire United States. And these are, these are healthcare workers that deal with things like tuberculosis and sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, they've, they've hugely, huge atrophy over the last several decades is, you know, we no longer pay attention to public health, probably, probably because we've been so effective at vaccines, right? Well, we don't need them anymore. But here's my point. And this is something that Tom Frieden, a former CDC director, said the other day, that in order to follow up, let's say we well, let's say with suppression and, and what we call mitigation, we actually bring actual new cases down to, say, 10,000 a day. So that, that's the actual cases. You know, we're, we actually are measuring them all and it's down to 10,000 or maybe down to 5,000 or something like that. We really do bring them way down. How are you going to follow up on them all, right? In China, exactly. in China, they have 
a, a three or four person crew to follow up on every infection. And then they have to trace all the contacts. And then they have to enforce self-isolation. They have to enforce quarantines. They have to put tape on the door. They got to put a video cam. They do a cell phone. They call them every day. Who's going to do that? You're going to need a, a team of about three people, four people per person. Well, okay, think about it. <laughs> Say you have 10,000 every day. Uh, this is why this is why Tom Frieden thinks you'll need about 300,000 people to actually do a test and trace. Well, okay, let me let me just cut to the chase here. If we can't do test and trace, then all we can do is mitigation, which just simply is going to go back and forth and back and forth. It is going to have no exit solution because we won't know who's infected, right? All we can do is just basically ease up for everyone or restrict for everyone. Now we might have, we might say that well. You know, having kids go to school is not quite as bad as having certain people go into factories. We can we can tweak around the edges, but we won't have smart suppression strategy, which is the kind of thing that they're doing in East Asia that actually works. So you only have one other solution if you want to get to an end game. And that was the thing that was uh, proposed in the Netherlands and Sweden and the UK. And that's what I call shooting the rapids. And going for herd immunity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, that's a real gutsy political call. No national leader has yet done it. Sweden kind of, you know, is still playing with it. But that looks like they're now ramping up on their restrictions. Uh, they're beginning to employ mitigation strategies. So they're not really going to follow through with that. And we know that because new cases and, and deaths are going up in Sweden, right? So it's predictable. So it's going to happen. So they're going to react that way. But you could, to do that would be no more easy for civil libertarians because that would require a massive, I don't know, transporting all the elderly to an island or we put them all on, uh, I don't, where, where do you put them? Some big island off the coast. We would need, uh, we would have the uh, sealed hotels for people with pre-existing conditions. And we basically tell all the millennials to go out and have a chicken pox party, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then get all the hospitals ready. Uh, and, 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 and go through it. Well, that at least is a strategy, okay? At least I will respect it for a strategy. If you really can think that one through, I think it would be very difficult to implement. I think it would be harder to implement than, um, than test and trace, uh, frankly. But where we are is where like a sailboat that is steered into the wind and we can't tack in either direction. We are in the worst possible position right now, Christian, because, because at our current rate, let's say we're at 300,000 a day. That's 1 million every three days. How long is it going to take it at that rate to get to herd immunity, which would require in our country about 250, 260, 270 million? <laughs> what, two years? <laughs> well, that's, we might as well just, you know, we'll have that vaccine by then, right? And anyway, that's not, even that's not even mentioning, you know, there's some debate about whether people are actually getting immunity from this and how long it will last. Right. Well, yeah, yeah that's a whole nother that's a whole nother thing <laughs> we have to talk about. And uh, anyway, enough of that. Uh, we're going to go on and, and uh, talk about um, uh, let's let's move on and talk about the economies around the world. Um, and. Yes. Uh, that's the tsunami I talked about a couple of weeks ago, and and now the tsunami is coming in, and we're finally getting readings. Uh, maybe we can say a little bit about what's happening in the U.S. 
Yeah, sure. Do you want to start with unemployment right now? Unemployment. Yeah, that's a good one. So unemployment, uh, we have continuing claims. As many of you know, uh, initial claims, I don't know what we're at initial claims now. It's well over 20 million. The I think point, we're at 22 million. 22 million initial claims up through what? Not not this current week, but last week, right? Um, yes. Yeah, 22 million. Now, it turns out that about two thirds of the first week were furloughed. So they did not go over and count as continuing claims. And about only one third uh, furloughed. So we're having a declining trend in furloughed, which is not good, which, you know, furlough basically means that the that the companies, um, they're, they're not getting pay, they're eligible for unemployment benefits, but they're not counted as unemployed because they're not looking for work. They're still technically employed by the company. But apparently now all the new initial uh, claims are increasingly non-furloughed, meaning these guys have just been fired, right? Uh, I I look at the data now and I see that we're up around um, we're up around 16 million getting continuing claims. This is just those on benefits getting continuing claims, uh, uh, not including the, uh, the the furloughed ones. That's well over twice. Uh, the peak of 2009. So just unbelievable. In three weeks, we're, we have a much more massive uh, situation than 2009. Again, though, if it's the natural disaster narrative, you're not listening, right? <laughs> so, <Yes>. <laughs> so I would say uh, if you just count those alone, uh, we're maybe at 13, 14% unemployment. Then if you count all the people who are not filing for unemployment claims. And, you know, remember, a lot of these gig workers are not eligible in many states. Uh, thanks to our, uh, you know, our, our uh, uh, Secretary of Labor. Um, I think it's Eugene Scalia. I think that's Antonin Scalia's mm-hmm. son, uh, Secretary of Labor. And apparently he's not terribly, um, he's not terribly helpful for a lot of these gig workers who, who want to file claims. Uh, he's, he, he wants to have a strict standard. Well, that's, I guess, his prerogative. But as a result... You're going to have a lot of these uh, gig and contract workers who will be adding to that. So we may be well over 20% unemployment. I think that's unbelievable to me. Uh, throughout my lifetime, the highest unemployment that I ever saw was, I believe, 1983, which was just over 10%. I believe that was a little bit higher than what we saw in 2009. Uh, but my God. This is amazing, isn't it? We live in amazing times. So yes. what, what, what else have you got, uh, Christian? Uh, so we got the conference board leading, in, leading index, which month over month was down 6.7% for March. Now, that is its largest decline in its 60-year history. Hmm. So I guess that's significant. Yes. We're breaking records. We're breaking records. Um, okay. Other March data, we got the Chicago Fed National Activity Index, which you and I have talked about. It's usually pretty slow to move, but for March, it was minus 4.19. That's That's huge for that index, yeah. Lowest reading since January of 2009. It's only been lower one other time, and that was in December of 1974. Wow, that's... uh, yeah, that's an index that actually is pretty slow to register. It takes something like 600 different time series. It's one of these things that uh, only the Chicago Fed can do. They they And I think actually it's it's based on the original, you know, work of those uh of those guys in the in the 30s, you know, who are designing national accounts and who were very interested in and in, in cyclical movements 
Uh, and, you know, the, the real study of business cycles uh, in the 30s came out of that. And I think that's one of the one of the indexes that still reflects that. Yes. Well, we also have some April data. We yeah. have the Empire State Manufacturing Index, which hit another record, uh, came in at minus 78.2 for April. That's its lowest reading. Minus 78%. That just doesn't sound okay. good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and we also got the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index, which came in at minus 56.6 for April. That is its lowest reading since July of 1980. And it was only expected to be minus 30. So that was much that's, worse than expected. That's definitely a negative surprise. Although at those levels, I mean, who's counting anymore? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what else do we got? What's What's coming up? Uh, coming up, we have some flash PMI data coming up on Thursday. So that's definitely something we should be looking for. Also, we have Dallas Fed manufacturing that's going to be coming out on Monday. So definitely keep your eye out for that. That should be very low. Yeah, I'm, I'm really waiting for those first indicators of, um, of, of real April, you know, April activity. Yeah. And I, I suppose early in May, we'll get all of our NFP numbers, you know, employment numbers and all the rest of that stuff. So yes. Now, we're, we're, Neil, do you have, I think you have some estimates here from the IMF that came out last week. Yes, the IMF. Well, that's interesting. Uh, this is U.S. debt. The IMF, uh, which looks at all levels of government, not just you know, the federal, which is, you know, we tend to just look at federal debt, but it looks at all levels of government, says the U.S. debt to GDP ratio is going to rise over this next year from 109% uh, of GDP to 131% of GDP. Wow. That, that will put us behind even next year. That will put us number three in the world behind Italy at 156 and Japan, of course, which is the, you know, debt titan of them all at 252 percent uh but i just thought that was um uh i i i just thought that was that was very striking um and uh yeah and i do want to go on and um i think talk a little bit about uh europe and uh realize you know time is moving on so i, I really want to say a little bit about europe um, Europe, as 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 many of you know, has done a number of huge things to uh, to to basically rescue their economy. Uh, they have suspended the EU stability pact, which basically allows every country to borrow whatever it wants, right? Uh, yeah. Which is definitely an exception from the usual rule. They've uh, they've they can go up to seven hundred and fifty. A billion euros in in quantitative easing, but I'm sure that will be eased to go further whenever, um, you know, whenever uh, 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 the ECB wants, and um, and then the a 500 euro a billion dollar emergency package, which is just direct fiscal aid, which is uh, uh, just funded by the um, uh, by Brussels. Um, the eurozone debt to GDP ratio is expected to go from 84 to 97 percent, and that's including, you know, real misers like Germany. Um, and then they're talking about something called a uh, a, uh, a, uh, a, 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 a a a an emergency stabilization uh, mechanism, 
And that is going has been used in the past for Ireland, Portugal, Greece, and Cyprus. It's not considered to be a great mark on you if you have to use it. It has a short maturity debt, strict conditionality, and that's the problem right now in Europe. So the big face-off in Europe is, and this could really endanger the, the actual uh, integrity of the European Union even more than what we saw uh, back in Mario Draghi's years, you know, in, in, in 2012 and 2013. And that is a huge face-off between Northern Europe and, and Southern Europe. Uh, Southern Europe, and including many of the Eastern European countries, this would be Italy, Portugal, Spain, Greece, and the Visegrad countries. These are, you know, Czechia, uh, uh, Slovakia, Poland, and Hungary. They all call themselves friends of cohesion, and they want lots of uh, grants, and they want debt issued that will be uh, assumed by all of the EU, right? Burden sharing on the debt. So, you know, Germans will have to pay pay it back <laughs> as, well, as well as Southerners. And guess who stands in their way? The frugal four. And they're all in the north. Austria, Denmark, Netherlands, and Sweden. Uh, they want to cap EU spending. I've always wanted to cap EU spending at 1% of EU GDP. They do not want any universal assumption of debt. And this whole new idea of corona bonds, you know, that we'll all assume liability for these bonds together. Hey, we're all just buds, right? You know, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. And here you've got your classic confrontation of the ants versus the grasshoppers, right? So all these, you know, uh, Germany used to be the, the uh, Germany kind of, it's interesting. Germany uh, no longer, Germany's happy to have these other frugal four kind of take its place in the argument. Uh, Germany claims that it's, you know, it would consider some of this, but it doesn't want to be the bad guy anymore, right? Uh, but it's interesting. Uh, Germany has always had this point of view, right? You know, we save, uh, we always make provision for bad times. And all you southern countries, you know, you just, you just, uh, you spend all, you know, you're just not frugal. You're kind of just let go with your libido. I, I don't know what your problem is, but you somehow you're just never ready for a rainy day. And then you always come crying to us, right? So you've got a real cultural problem between North and South right now. Uh, and, and you can see now France is somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, Emmanuel Macron definitely favors the Friends of Cohesion. He wants the EU to be this big, glorious, grand thing. Emmanuel Macron believes that Europe is facing its moment of truth and it supports mutualization of debt. And as always, France thinks it's central to all of Europe. So this will make France, you know, a bigger and grander place. Um, and it's interesting, in a recent speech by Macron, he said, make sinners pay that was France's mistake to Germany after World War One. Remember that? That was the Versailles Treaty, the Carthaginian peace. Well, it's an interesting way. He's kind of trying to twist the knife into these into Germany. Uh, you know, that was a mistake back then. It's a mistake today, right? So interesting. Uh, France is also, though, heavily in debt. Its uh, net debt to GDP ratio is around uh, 110 percent. Um, Italy. Uh, is being torn apart by this. Uh, Giuseppe Conte is now a popular leader of the Democratic Party, uh, but he's not too sure whether to use this uh, emergency or Euro stability mechanism, this ESM, uh, because it comes with any conditions. And Matteo Salvini on the right is brutally attacking Conte and basically saying, if you kowtow to Brussels and you, know, you make us slaves to Brussels, you know, I'm going to make you pay politically. 
And Conte is looking at his five-star supporters in the South. And the five-star, we've talked about that right in the past, Christian. Five-star is oh, yes. kind of cracking up. They're electing a new leader. So he's unsure, Conte, on his own left, how much support he has. So he hasn't yet agreed whether he's going to actually make use of the Euro stability mechanism. What he wants to hold out for is some kind of corona bond, some something really generous. Uh, but But he's sort of, you know, watching and waiting. He still remains pretty popular. But Matteo is out there, and uh, Salvini, as you know, would, remains probably more has, has probably for a year and a half would be the uh, presumptive favorite in any new election. So Conte is always looking over his shoulder there. Uh, in Spain, Pedro Sanchez uh, finds his government embattled. He's losing opposition support. His support is sinking. Uh, and he, he finds his worst problem to be his ally, the Podemos Party. Uh, this is the kind of the left-wing socialist party with uh, headed by pa- Pablo Iglesias, uh, who is still anti-Franco. He's anti-business. He wants business to engage in no firings at all, you know, during this crisis. Well, you can imagine what business thinks of him. Um, and the the uh, there's a real risk uh, that the um, uh, that 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 Sanchez you know, might, you know, might actually lose his majority coalition. He's also facing a huge amount of opposition from, you know, Catalonia, from the Basques and uh, and everything else. Uh, what they want, they take the most radical position. They do not want uh, loans at all. They don't even want mutualized loans. They want grants. Uh, they want $1.5 trillion recovery front, fund, according to Deputy Prime Minister Nadio, Nadia Cavigno. Uh, and you can imagine what the uh, what the frugal for think of that idea. Um, but this raises a bigger issue, Christian, and that is just an entire radicalized generation of young people. I remember we, we never really got all that much lower unemployment after 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. So you have this entire generation of young people facing another event like this. Again, we're going to have unemployment rates for young people go up to over 50%. They're all living at home, which, by the way, guess what that does to infections? You know, I've, I've often talked about how culture influences the R-naught, right? The, the, you know, how many people everyone infects. I mean, the fundamental driver of, uh, of the pandemic. And there are two things I've noticed about Latin culture in Southern Europe. And one is... They're very physical, right? They do all the double kissing. I mean, you know, they're they're, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just all over you. You know, it's kind of the opposite of Japan uh, where you just, you know, a little bow is all you need, right? Um, and also, they all live together. Have you ever thought of that? All these young people living with their parents. And I can't help but believe that that is... Um, uh, that is not helpful uh, in this particular situation. And all last, those but asymptomatic, all those asymptomatic carriers, all those asymptomatic kids coming home and uh, and and making their. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, not with any fault of their own. It's just how this yeah. this virus works. Uh, the big problem in Germany turns out to be we've we've talked often on our show about how efficient uh, the northern Europeans are about replacing uh, employer income. 
uh, it's a system that works much better than, uh, you know, the Small Business Administration, you know, giving you a certificate and having you go beg from a bank. I mean, that's the weird and absolutely unbelievable system that we have here in this country. But in Germany and and many of these northern uh, uh, countries, the government comes in and just simply takes over the payroll. So the government just starts paying the workers. You know, and it's seamless. The problem is fraud. <laughs> you can imagine. And it turns out that Germany is now discovering there are thousands of fake firm sites, uh, many of them uh, Eastern European hackers that are just getting vast amounts of money from this thing. So, you know, uh, and, and apparently everyone using home computers uh, today just makes phishing easier. So there you go. Um <laughs> So that's so much for Europe, um, and we uh, um, let's say looking. Yeah, time wise, we're yeah, time wise, we're getting close. Why don't we do this? Why don't we talk a little bit about politics in the United States? Um, the 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 fading Trump approval bounce. Do you think there's some relationship between the fading equity bounce in the markets and the fading Trump approval bounce? I don't know. You have any thoughts on that, Christian? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, we've often talked about that. A lot of in the past, presidents usually see a pretty big bump during crises, but Trump isn't seeing that as much. You know, some of these governors who are more on the front lines that you see with these big news conferences, they actually are seeing very large approval ratings going yeah. through the roof. But yeah. Trump's not getting that. He's You're not seeing getting the, that. These, these governors are getting, you know, 30 to 40 percent boosts. And, you know, Trump's getting, a you know, three to four percent boost. Um, and it's interesting because in the um, in the futures markets, Trump is no longer the favorite. Um, uh, uh, to win in the fall. Uh, and he knows that. I mean, you know, he, he's aware of that. And unfortunately for, for the president, this, this is obviously my personal opinion, that he, he's, he's just so near-term focused. I mean, he just can't get over focusing on what the stock market's going to do this week. He really should be focusing on where the stock market's going to be in, you know, August. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and... <laughs> And if he thought that way, he would be thinking much more strategically, like, okay, maybe it's better to take a big hit in the market now and then enjoy the recovery. I mean, that's what Ronald Reagan did during his first term. Um, I, I realize that's before your time. You know, you're a millennial. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not. But but that's what Reagan was able to do. He was able to take a lot of punishment in the stock market. He almost invited that early. I mean, he appointed Volcker. Uh, no growth in the money supply. If he fired the air traffic controllers, I mean, it was just mayhem early on, and he didn't mind it. He said, "That's great because you know what? By the time of my reelection, it'll be morning again in America." And by God, it was. Uh, I, I don't see that same kind of uh, 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 strategizing here. Um, I know that um, when it comes to governors, we have a a, a kind of a, a pro-Trump governor, uh, DeSantis, in Florida. Uh, his approval ratings have actually been going down, um, but he did open up the beaches last week, right? Uh, or a couple of days ago. Right. Yep. And, and it, if you remember, his election was extremely close against, uh, I think it was Andrew Gillum. Was that Yeah, was? Andrew and, Gillum and uh, a guy very, as much to the left as DeSantis was to the right. Correct. So And, and uh, so... He barely won. He's doing what he wants. I think we also have the governor of Georgia, right, who now yes. is, wants to open up his state. We'll see how that goes. 
One of the things I find fascinating uh, is the rise of the Tea Party uh, right, sort of the repeat rise of the Tea Party right uh, in this weird scenario of, uh, you know, rallying uh, demonstrations in opposition to shut, you know, the governor's policies, which are actually trying to follow exactly what the Trump White House says ought to be their strategy. It's a very weird time. It's one thing to have a Tea Party Party movement when the other side is president. It's it's kind of weirder to have it when you're when you're (laughs) when you're, you know, the the president is your own friend. Um, I don't know. Uh, It it definitely puts Trump in a very strange position here that. Well, you know, it, it's kind of its base going against him a little bit, but also with him, it's yeah. Well, it's 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 it's. I think he's playing all the angles, and I think uh, yeah. his reasoning is is that after first of all saying all the authority rests in his hands, um, I think he quickly turned <laughs> around and said, "Well, wait a second, that means it's all my responsibility if it goes wrong." And I, I think he quickly <laughs> changed his mind and said, "No, no, 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 no. You're right. It's it's the governors. You know, we'll kind of give general strategic advice." But it's all up to the governors. And then, of course, now we can take the anti-governor line uh, with his base, right? Uh, right? I'm just kind of an observer here. I'm not a national leader. Um, and, you know, what what they do in these East Asian countries, well, I don't know. I really don't care. Um, and I think that's the real problem. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, at a, at a time like this, we have declining trust in democracy. And we, you know... We're, we're kind of out of time. We probably won't have time to do our authoritarian piece. I'd, I'd love to do it because I think there's something much broader going on here, Christian, and that is um, this, 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 this rise in the power of governments uh, in all the democracies. I mean, people are getting up every morning. They're watching their governors, their, their national leaders about what rules to follow today, about what they can expect in the immediate future. Uh, the most of the world today is under lockdown. And then, of course, with the loss of employment, we've all become wards of the state. I mean, think about it. I mean, the yeah. road to serfdom, it's here. I mean, uh, so so the, these, the authorities are in the, the controlling seat here, you know, in a way that mm-hmm. we've never seen. And I, I wonder about this whole, uh, all the rhetoric about... Um, you know, how Trump was going to tar Bernie Sanders with the label of socialism. That just seems so old fashioned now. Uh, and look where we are. And one thing that always arises in these periods, and we'll certainly have time to talk about this in future podcasts, is that all of the people around the world who always wanted an authoritarian regime are having a field day. I mean, look what's happening in Poland, in Hungary. I mean, in Russia, you know, Vladimir Putin has finally made himself czar for life. I mean, everyone's (laughs) kind of grabbing the power, you know. Um, And my biggest fear, and I'll just kind of end with this, is that even liberal democracies have to know that when crises strike, they have to be able to exhibit and demonstrate the, the flexibility and decisiveness in order to respond to the crisis, to the threat, and uh, and 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 to overcome the 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 
the listlessness, the enervation, the sclerosis that so many of these, uh, so many of these political systems uh, uh, have today. And and I and I, I I and I remarked on this in the in the Newswire essay that this controversy over the plan of Slovakia to introduce uh, test and tracing via cell phone, and suddenly the entire European Union becoming outraged by the fact that this would violate civil liberties, just flabbergasts me. And I'm just thinking, what would you rather that you just be? shut down in this massive, you know, indiscriminate mitigation scheme indefinitely. I mean, this is what I mean by having the resolve to say, you know, to hell with the dissenters in a case like this. There aren't there are only so many options to respond to this crisis. And occasionally you have to make the decision. You have to take the heat. You have to overcome dissent and you have to say, I'm making this decision. I'm national leader. Some of you aren't going to like it. I'll take responsibility for it. Um, and we we're seeing a lot of people respond to what's immediately in front of them uh, because they have to. But we're not seeing a lot of that more longer term uh, uh, mantle of, of what I would call real leadership. So, you know, yeah, with that, uh, we can we can, you <laughs> on know, that happy note <laughs> on that happy note. And I'm sure we can mine that system, mine that theme a little bit further on future uh, podcasts. But anyway, thanks, everybody, uh, again, for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. Uh, talk to you again next week. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Demography Unplugged. Tune in next time. If you have any questions about this broadcast or have suggestions for future topics, please contact qademography at hedgeye.com. Also, if you'd like to see more of what I have to offer, visit us online at hedgeye.com and also make sure to follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration. That's H-O-W-E Generation. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.